Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Carmichael, professor at the Department of Geological and Environmental Sciences at Appalachian State University. Dr. Carmichael is a geochemist who specializes in fluid rock reactions in both ancient and modern environments. Her current research explores fluid rock reactions in carbonates, acid mine drainage sites, and the role of microbes in manganese ore formation. She recently won a Board of Governors Teaching Award in 2020, and in addition, she became a National Geographic Explorer in 2018, and in 2022 was named one of the Explorers Club 50, 50 people changing the world who the world needs to know about. Great to have you on the podcast, Dara. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I always like to start the podcast by learning a little bit more about my guests and how they became involved in the field of either critical minerals or issues that are related to the field. And what I really appreciate about your background is that geoscience and mineralogy emphasis, while still recognizing the important role of science in many of these larger political and societal challenges that we're going to be facing. Uh, So could you tell me a little bit more about your journey and how it led you to your current work that you do today? Yes. um, I did not ever expect to be a scientist, and I ended up doing some citizen science work in high school, doing um, work in estuaries, looking at uh, human contamination um, in different sort of susceptible watershed areas, and that was beautiful and wonderful and freeing to actually um, work with data that I collected myself. And I ended up going to college and majoring in geology. And the only reason I did that is I took a, I couldn't get into the microbiology class I wanted. And so ended up as a geology major instead. And I have no regrets. Um, I started doing um, independent research with one of my professors there. And he had to force me to do it because I had no idea that being a scientist could ever be a thing that someone like me would do. Um, I was a janitor when I I worked my way through college as a janitor, and I was just like, nope, have a summer job cleaning dorms. And um, he said, no, you can make more money as a a research assistant. And so um, he forced me to write an application to be a research assistant. And here I am now. While I am sort of a geochemist, I I don't know what to call myself anymore. Biogeochemist, biomineralogist, sedimentary geochemist, metamorphic petrologist, and I'm also studying paleofluid flow, so who knows? You bring up a couple good points about how the fact that many scientists that are out there changing the world had their roots in some sort of beginning, which was often either citizen science or just at a very young age getting involved in science. And I think that emphasizes, in, in my in my opinion, the role of K through 12 education and a lot of these discussions mm-hmm. about critical minerals and other things, because you really need to get them there. Because I know for myself, I was interested in science starting in high school. I think every guest that we've had on before has always defined it as a meandering river or meandering mm-hmm. street, you know, pathway. So I think that's really interesting that we all have these multiple various fields that we all kind of come together. I, I love that about critical mineral discussions because there's it's so um, broad and it's not constrained by any one way of looking at mineralogy. And I feel like you can get anybody interested in it, even people with no science background. Absolutely. I think that whether you're a consumer that just wants to know more about their products and what's in it, or you're a scientist and you want to study that, or you're a policymaker that wants to understand what are the challenges from a political perspective, where we mine it, how we mine it, who is the control of some of these operations. No, you're right. And I hope the field continues to be that that open and that welcoming to other fields of study, because as you probably know, there's certain fields in science that are, <laughs> are not as open and welcome to various aspects and other fields. 
So we, we've spoken previously about rare earth elements and coal fly ash tailings and some of the current environmental and technical challenges that are related to that domestic mining discussion. And so many of these sites near us on the East Coast here in the United States are located in rural communities in the Appalachians. And failure to get this right this time could actually result in major social and environmental consequences, which what ended up happening with the coal operations in the past. So can you tell me a little bit more about rare earth elements or REEs and the coal fly ash, how companies want to extract it, and some of the geological and environmental opportunities, but challenges that lie ahead. People are looking for rare earth elements in coal ash, but also in um, gob piles, garbage of bituminous, that's what gob stands for, and also in acid mine drainage. And those locations are going to be in very different places. Acid mine drainage and gob piles will be in the coal fields, whereas coal ash is going to be in the places where the power plants are. So this will be concentrated in the regions surrounding Appalachia, like surrounding the coal fields in Appalachia, but not directly in the coal fields themselves. So all throughout North Carolina, Virginia, um, Ohio, Western, Central and Western Kentucky, etc. So when you are thinking about the kind of politics surrounding using waste material for your um, rare earth element extraction, you have to think about where are you getting that waste material because there'll be different supports for that or different opposition to that depending on where you are. People at WVU are doing a ton of work on this in acid mine drainage. People in um, at the University of Kentucky are doing this work on coal ash in particular. So with the folks working on acid mine drainage, they are taking the solids from the acid mine drainage um, waste material. So this will be things like iron and manganese oxides. And um, these are usually biologically produced, although not always, compressing those as part of a um, treatment system, a passive treatment um, system directly in the field, compressing it and then leaching out through a variety of different types of um, I don't want to call them solvents, but ion exchange processes, um, taking the uh, rare earth elements out of the acid mine drainage solid sort of, it looks like kind of orangey foam almost by the time they've compressed it. With the coal ash, it's a little bit different. And that one is um, in some ways a little more promising because you do have, if you can clean the rare earth elements out again with an ion exchange process, then you've got the waste material left over, which is the coal ash without the rare earth elements in it. And that can go on to be used in concrete and asphalt and other things. Some of that is proprietary information. It's still being developed for one thing. Well, that's really interesting because I think it's important and you, and you highlight this important point that there's multiple pathways, right? I want to go back to a point that you just made um, about biologically produced. And of course, that's something that you do. And I think, yes. you know, I was, we, we just had a conference the other day with Dr. Uh, Hazen. Oh, and cool. I was talking a little bit about the future of mineralogy and all these different things. And, you know, one of the things is biomineralogy and a lot of these different discussions about it, because it's related to your research or how are these organisms producing some of this material, these sites that are actually either helping us or aiding us in these discussions when we're looking for these resources. I'm so glad you asked that question. And Bob Hazen is amazing when he talks about this stuff, very inspiring. So I uh, specifically work in manganese oxides and um, 
I usually work in caves, but I've also worked in some acid mine drainage sites. And for those of your listeners who are unfamiliar with manganese oxides, particularly biologically produced ones, these form very, very tiny black and dark brown coatings typically. Um, on rocks, sometimes you'll find them as little dendritic sort of things, but manganese oxides form more than 30 different minerals. And um, the biological ones, there's just kind of two that are formed um, by either fungi or bacteria. And what's really interesting about those in particular, especially compared to iron oxides, is the crystal structure of the man biological manganese oxides, either um, totorochite or burnicite those um, are very porous and they have these big either um, sheet areas in burnicite where you can have you can suck up big huge nasty heavy metal ions or these negatively charged tunnels where you can again suck up these big positively charged heavy metal ions as well these um, biologically produced manganese oxides act as wonderful sponges essentially for not only rare earth elements, but also all of the other nasty contamination that you would get as part of an acid mine drainage scenario. I feel like one of the big things about mining is the environmental cost that it has on some of these things. But I'm just so fascinated with these ongoing discussions about biomineralogy and all these things. Like, how can we use organisms to actually help us? Like, we always think of a high tech, right? Like the, the future of mining is high tech and there's all these different things. But, you know, in some regards, maybe we could actually use organisms to aid us in some of these extraction processes or other, you know, factors that happen in the mining. So it's just a really kind of abstract of how can we actually use biology to aid us in our metallurgy and mining and all these different things. I, I remember I was at an event the other day and like, what's the future of mining? And they were, you know, asking a group of kids, you know, what's a miner look like? And, you know, of course, everyone's thinking, you know, a pickaxe and covered in coal and a helmet deep in a mine. And they're like, well, that's not really the case. You know, there's a lot of scientists and other people that are working on mining related topics. But how can we use all of those organisms that, you know, could be aiding us in these discussions? Can I just add one more thing to sort of showcase the amazingness that are uh, manganese oxides in terms of rare earth elements and critical materials? These are also um, biological manganese oxides are forming the manganese nodules at the bottom of the ocean that folks are talking about mining as well for some of these rare earth elements. So this is not just in coal mining situations with acid mine drainage, this is also um, in deep sea mining, has to do with hydrothermal vents, all sorts of different processes that'll concentrate elements of interest are usually gonna be associated with manganese, biological manganese oxides. Do you think that there is a there is a role here with these organisms to to aid in the environmental you know mediate like trying to make sure can we use these organisms to kind of make sure that we're not you know doing some of these negative impacts to the environment because it almost seems like these organisms could aid us in yeah, improving the environment they could almost be our uh, how would you say buffers or um, kind of maintaining these remediation efforts using these organisms. Yeah, so there's been um, some work done by that by a bunch of different scientists who are using passive treatment systems that specifically are trying to make these blooms of um, microorganisms happy so that they deposit the manganese oxides out. And you can get 50 to, I think, 100% cleanup of heavy metals once you raise the pH to the right level. Um, what you're left over with is just these... Um, heavy metals with no place to go, that's when the manganese oxidizers start up. And these are found everywhere. I mean, these are just naturally found in soil. So it's not like you have to import manganese oxidizers from somewhere. They're really, really common. 
And um, then you can end up cleaning between 50 to 100% of your wastewater from these heavy metals. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's just an exciting time to be alive and thinking about all these issues. But again, as you say, bringing in multiple fields, I mean, there's so many people that I bet if we were having this discussion right now in Washington, D.C., their minds would be blown. And that's the point of all these things, right? It's like there's so many aspects that we're that we need to bring into these discussions when we're talking about this demand for these critical materials, whether or not like cobalt, it re reduces or increases in demand because of its battery chemistry. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. I mean, we're going to need metals for the future. We're going to need these minerals mm -hmm. and that environmental cost that could come from it. These other organisms and other methods to mitigate those things is what mining needs to be emphasizing because that's really how we can mine more, but do it safely at the same time. So I, I want to talk now about a course that you teach, and this is a previous discussion that we had. I think it's really interesting, and it's titled Energy Extraction in the Appalachia, Past, Present, and Future. And as someone who myself grew up in the Appalachian community, I think this is a topic that is highly overlooked, but really important uh, to the domestic mining discussion. And so what was the inspiration behind this class? You know, what are some of the key concepts that you try to impress upon students and maybe how do they apply those skills, not only in geoscience, but kind of in the policy discussions right now? All right, this is going to sound sort of trite, but I saw the movie, the documentary Harlan County, USA, probably 20, 22 years ago now. I saw it in 2000 and I just like rented it from the library for I'm not sure why. And I was like, this is amazing. And I want to know more about this. And this is all labor history um, of the coal fields. And I ended up, um, I had friends who lived in the coal fields, ended up marrying someone from the coal fields. And um, he is a documentary filmmaker who discusses um, coal mining and some of the politics surrounding coal mining. And we, well, when we moved to Appalachian State to um, start our careers here, we thought, let's make a class about this. Nobody's talking about this. Anytime people talk about Appalachia in the sort of Appalachian studies region. It's about like the music and, you know, rocking chairs and, you know, storytelling and stuff like that. And I felt like there was a, a missing, a missed opportunity and I wanted to fill it. So this is a team talk class and he teaches the politics and the, um, the social aspects of coal mining, like labor history, economic transitions. I teach about the environmental science, the geology and the technology part of it. And so that was the inspiration for the class. It's changed a lot over the years, going from something that concentrated mostly on coal mining when we started teaching it in 2010. And the last 12 years have been massively um, disruptive to the coal industry. And we've completely changed the class now. So now it talks not only about coal mining, but also about natural gas extraction and now lithium. Uh, mining as well, and rare earth element mining. I, I really like the format of it because I think it's really important to teach it from both angles. I mean, again, I'm, I'm a sucker for interdisciplinary classes or, or syllabuses that uh, have, you know, both perspectives coming in because I just think that is such a fruitful thing for students to learn. So that's why I was really interested about it. I mean, so our, if it's a general education class, do you try to get more geology students to also come in there and contribute? I mean, because I would say students probably have contributions, because you are in an area that you would probably get some students that live from these communities that they can bring their own perspectives into that class. Yeah, a lot of them are environmental science majors, um, because this will count towards their degree. 
um, as an elective, um, but a lot of them are just students who are either interested in Appalachian studies, just interested in the topic in general. Um, so it's really kind of a broad mixture of who we get in the class. But one thing almost always, and this is a function of it being at Appalachian State and not at some other university, um, they all come in either not knowing very much, but but like being really anti-mining of any sort. And I do think that they come out with a much more nuanced view of why you have these mining disasters, which isn't necessarily about the mining itself, but about the um, lack of oversight or laws that don't get followed. Um, some of the, a lot of the problems that we have with mining stem back to 1977 with the Surface Mine Re Control and Reclamation Act and the loopholes that have been taken advantage of through federal policy, um, particularly, you know, at the state level. And so there's just one, one of the things that I really like to sort of hammer home to them is like federal policy influences local um, mine disasters, it influences um, enforcement of environmental regulations, and this stuff really matters. No, really, really fascinating. This wraps up part one of my conversation with Sarah. Join us next time as we discuss contemporary issues around energy extraction in the Appalachians and how it is imperative that a rush for these critical mineral resources does not negatively impact these rural communities and provides economic opportunity for the local economy.